And where it gets really gnarly is that in the Internet of Things world, where you have thermostats and toasters and cars, and they all have software in them, and all that software is copyrighted, adding DRM can allow manufacturers to force you to use their products in ways that benefit them instead of you. So in the early 2000s, printer vendors tried to use the DMCA to right. force you to buy first-party inkjet cartridges, and they were trounced because there wasn't enough software in those cartridges, but now there is. Right now, refilling your inkjet cartridge could be a felony. And so we're now seeing DRM in pacemakers, in the seismic dampers that keep skyscrapers from falling down, in cars so that they can force um, uh, mechanics to spend $70,000 on a diagnostic tool and make as a condition of selling that tool that they only buy original parts that cost five times as right. much as the third parts. We're seeing it in tractors so farmers can't fix their own tractors anymore. Um, in, in all kinds of technology. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, we've got another great show for you this week and the second part of our very entertaining interview and very informative interview with Corey Doctrow. Uh, and today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, if you missed it, we talked about kind of the origins of copyright and how we got where we are today and how it affects all of us uh, today in our digital lives basically on a daily basis. And uh, we're going to really dig into why that matters so much today when we start talking about digital rights management. Uh, or DRM. We'll throw that term around a lot during this interview, but DRM, just think of it as copy control. This is uh, how the content providers basically keep you from doing what you want with the stuff that you supposedly purchased. So we'll be, that'll be coming up here in a little bit. Before we get into that, though, let's start with our usual news of the week. I've got a handful of things I'd like to go through with you. And of course, at the end of the show, uh, I've got my tip of the week. First of all, we just passed the second Tuesday of the month, and for all of you with Microsoft products, you know what that means. It's called Patch Tuesday. Uh, so once a month, usually, uh, Microsoft releases patches for its, all its products, uh, including Windows and Microsoft Office in particular. And uh, there were a couple big bugs uh, fixed with the release from last week, including my Internet Explorer, Microsoft Edge, Microsoft Windows, Microsoft Office and Office Services, Skype, yada, 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 yada. So uh, be sure, as always... Uh, to update your software. And with Microsoft Office, uh, you could usually do that by just launching one of the Office products, Excel or Word or PowerPoint or one of those. And when you launch it, it should automatically kick off your software update checker. Uh, and it will go get that. Obviously, for Windows itself, make sure you just get, uh, have your auto update turned on for Windows. And that will just happen automatically. Uh, so make sure you get that fixed. There was the, the, the last patch fixed, as it usually does, some pretty crucial bugs. So uh, patch early, patch often, as we like to say. Next up, we've got a potential phishing attack for uh, those of you using Apple's mobile products. That would be their iPhone, the iPad. Um, a researcher has come up with a proof of concept, which means that it's not necessarily being used yet by the bad guys, but it probably means they're going to start using it soon. So uh, pay attention to this one. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it's kind of tricky, but listen up and I'll get you through it as best we can. So... You've probably noticed multiple times when you're on your iPhone or your iPad where the, the little window uh, pops up and say, please enter your iTunes ID or your, or your iTunes password or your iCloud password. Uh, it does it, unfortunately, often. And it, actually, I find it extremely annoying myself. I don't know why it seems to constantly want to log me out and force me to log back in. Obviously, if I restart my phone and things like that, I you know sometimes I can see that. But Anyway, it's a pain in the butt, and because they do it all the time, and because we've just gotten used to entering that password all the time, um, it, it's, it, we wouldn't think twice if it happened. 
Unfortunately, it looks like it's fairly easy for uh, an app, any app on your phone, to implement something that looks basically identical to that pop-up. So what it should be, a system pop-up, it should be your iPhone itself, your Apple iOS system um, asking you to re-enter something because it needs it under the covers for some reason. Maybe it's trying to fetch mail or fetch something from your iTunes account or your iCloud account. Um, but if the app, an app can launch dialogue that looks basically identical, and then if you give the password to the app, and a, a malicious app in this case, that app then has your password um, for iTunes, which is not good. So what do you do about this? Um, uh, the article I read, and uh, uh, it's from a website called krausefx.com. That's K-R-A-U-S-E-F-X.com. I'll make sure I give these guys proper credit. Uh, suggest a few things you could try, uh, and these and these are mitigating things you could you could attempt to do. Um, if you hit your home button, uh, that is try to go back to like your main screen on your iPhone and your iPad, and if the dialogue then goes away, if the little pop up with the with the the form fill for your password goes away, then that was coming from an app, not from the system, and that's probably not good. Uh, second, you could just kind of train yourself to get into the mode of whenever you see that, just cancel out. Don't enter anything. Because uh, apparently, if you start entering things in, into that dialogue, um, even though you don't hit OK or accept or whatever, uh, the application that posts that dialogue can still have access to what you're entering, even if you don't hit OK. In other words, even if you don't kind of hit Enter and say, go with that. Um, so don't enter anything. Just cancel out of that dialogue and then go to your settings. Uh, at the very top of settings uh, should be your iCloud account. You should have your little name and icon. If you click that, you should be able to follow that through to sign in. And uh, if it's not asking you to sign in, then it, again, it was probably some sort of a rogue app that was asking for that password. Uh, I have not tested this thoroughly myself, um, uh, just because there's way too many permutations and there's too many apps that could be doing this. So, but I wanted to call this out to your attention just to let you know. Um, hopefully, Apple will come up with some sort of a, a fix for this. Um, but in the meantime, uh, just be careful when something pops up and is asking for some of these passwords. Uh, particularly your iTunes passwords, your iCloud passwords, those should be system dialogues, system requests. Um, and if they are coming from a, a malicious app, then they, that, that app could be trying to get your password. So again, um, the mitigation there is just to cancel out of that, uh, go back to settings and enter it directly or into whatever it was that said it needed it. iTunes, iCloud, um, App Store, whatever, uh, whatever it was that was asking for. Just go directly to the app, and if it really does need it, it should prompt you again, and you can enter it there. And next up, I want to update you on a court case that's been going on uh, between the U.S. government and a, and a web hosting site called DreamHost. We talked about this uh, a couple months ago um, with somebody from the EFF, I believe. Um, basically, uh, for the when the Trump inauguration was coming around, there was a group of protesters who put together a website called Disrupt J20. Um, and, uh, you know, mostly it was just people complaining about the president or complaining about, you know, Donald Trump. Um, and part of it was organizing protests, counter protests uh, for that day. Unfortunately, there were some people involved in that uh, effort that were actually planning to, uh, quote, do uh, premeditating, premeditated rioting. So according to this article, and I'm going to read you a little pieces here from uh, this article from the Naked Security blog, which is a great blog from Sophos. Uh, Sophos is a company that does uh, antivirus products. Um, so from the article, it says, quote, 
On Inauguration Day, some rioters were armed with hammers, crowbars, wooden sticks, and other weapons. The government says that both civilians and police officers were hurt in the riot, unquote. So obviously that's never good. It's While we always want to be able to have free speech and, and protest and politely and, well, quietly and safely without doing harm, uh, we need to be able to express ourselves, but not in any kind of a way that hurts per, uh, people or property. So that's never good, and the government had a right to try to find out who these people might be. Unfortunately, the government came in and basically said, okay, we want to know everybody. We want we want the information on everybody who ever visited this website, which was like 1.3 million visitors. Obviously, this is overbroad. Um, and, you know, anybody, <laughs> anybody who respects the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment, and, you know, unreasonable search and seizure would have to say, okay, that's, that's too broad. And thankfully, the judge said so. And uh, back in August, I think it was, he kind of said, okay, this is too broad, so we need to have some procedures around this, and how are you going to protect people? Uh, however, in the meantime, he's come down and uh, recently uh, said that we need to do it a little further than that. So again, let me just quote something from uh, this article from this blog post. Uh, on Tuesday, Washington, D.C. Chief Justice Robert Morin uh, issued a revised order that said the government prosecutors had no right to, quote, rummage through the information contained on DreamHost's website. Uh, continuing, it says, while the government has the right to execute its warrant, it does not have the right to rummage through the information contained on DreamHost's website and discover the identity of or access communications by individuals not participating in the alleged criminal activity, particularly those persons who are engaged in protected First Amendment activities, unquote. So, yes, that, that's good. That sounds like the right way we want to go. We obviously need the right to pursue information about specific individuals uh, that were involved in illegal activities. Uh, so I think this struck the right balance. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up because I know we talked about it on a previous show and just bring up another example of some of the things we've talked about frequently on the show about where we draw the line between uh, mass surveillance and targeted surveillance uh, in in continuation of a warrant where we actually have probable cause and specific information on particular people. That's the way it's supposed to work. So anyway, that's a good story. I wanted to catch you up on that one. And next, I've got a story about passwords, the things we love to hate. The bane of our digital existence today. today. Uh, kind of a funny story, but one that we've all unfortunately had to deal with for many, many years, and hopefully not too many years more. Um, there's a government agency called NIST, or the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, or NIST for short. Uh, and these guys put together all sorts of guidelines, and some of the guidelines that they put out and publish have to do with cybersecurity. And there was one that they put out, uh, I think, back in 2003. Uh, I'm not even going to mention the poor guy's name because he's probably gotten, he's gotten all sorts of grief for this. But there was a guy, a manager at the NIST, who put out these password guidelines on what makes a good password and what a good password policy is. And some of the things he put out are things that you're going to recognize as soon as I start talking about them. You know, that they need to be of a certain length, that they need to have at least uh, some numbers in upper and lowercase letters and special characters in them. Uh, oh, and by the way, you should change them periodically every 60 days or something like that. So this guy put these in put these in paper form and and was published by the NIST back in 2003. And of course, you know, a lot of people took that to heart, and a lot of uh, IT uh, departments and, and probably in your favorite company uh, or some of your favorite websites had took these to heart and forced you to do all these things to make these crazy long passwords and uh, to you know with all these uh, weird characters and things that were hard for humans to remember. Uh, and just to add insult to injury, to force you to change these over so often. Well, 
Uh, a lot of security experts over the years have been saying that this is not these are not good practices. But, you know, hey, there it was written, written right there in paper from an official government agency. And a lot of people pointed to that and say, well, see, this guy says we should do it. The guy, you know, this this agency says we should do it. So let's do it. Turns out that the guy <laughs> in retrospect, the guy said, yeah, not so much. Uh, and, and he's very sorry that he forced basically forced everybody to be doing these things after all this time because they really weren't that great of policies. So uh, the upshot is that there's a few things that we that we take away from the updated guidelines, and they've been republished or part of its four-volume set of SP800-63B Digital Identity Guidelines from the NAST. I'm sure that'll be a great cure for insomnia if you want to check out and re- go to the actual source and read everything. But they've since now updated their guidelines and re- rescinded some of these kind of silly practices. So in particular... Uh, the password complexity rules, forcing people to to come up with all these things is, is difficult. Now, I, I, you know, uppercase and lowercase numbers, special symbols, things like that. I would disagree in one in one regard with that. Those are all still good. Those all do make your passwords harder to guess. Uh, but the the problem with those is that they're almost impossible for humans to remember. And so humans will come up with some scheme, right? They'll they'll replace O with zero and I with uh, the number one or uh, throw an exclamation mark at the end of every password or, you know, something that's very, basically it's very easy to guess. The, the cyber criminals know that if a human's coming up with this, they're going to come up with some pattern uh, for this, for these supposedly high tech uh, ways of making their passwords better that really aren't helping. Um, you know, if your password is password, you know, with a capital P and an at symbol for the letter A and a zero for the letter O, that's really no better than just password P-A-S-S-W-R-D. So, um, what I the, the one way I will disagree with that is those things are good. That basically that makes your that makes your they do make your password stronger and harder to guess, but not if you came up with the pattern for it. So uh, the best way to do that is to use a password manager. The password manager will use all these symbols in completely gibberish, random ways that will be impossible to guess. Um, the other way, of course, to do this, and, and this is some of the things they're starting to recommend as well, uh, is just use really really long passwords, and that is you can use a passphrase. Uh, come up with some little sentence or a, basically a series of nonsensical words that don't go together. Um, the uh, the classic uh, use case for this is from a comic book called XKCD. Uh, and if you've never read XKCD and you have any kind of a technical bent whatsoever, or if you're kind of geeky in general, definitely check out XKCD. These guys have got some hilarious comics. Uh, but, but the classic one from these guys is about picking a password or a passphrase. And he starts off with this, you know, crazy password that looks kind of like Troubadour with a zero instead of an O and a four instead of an A and an at three at the end just to add some extra stuff to it. And, you know, great. That looks like a great password, right? And then he comes up with this other one that's correct horse battery staple. Four completely random words. But the thing with the four completely random words is it's it's a lot longer um, and it's a lot easier for a human to remember. Uh, you could come up with some little mnemonic, and the, in the in the in the diagram, they talk about they show they show this guy thinking of a horse, and the horse says that's a battery staple, and someone says correct, so correct horse battery staple. So you know you can come up with ways to remember things like that, and it's you know mathematically speaking harder to guess than this other shorter password, even though that shorter password had upper and lower and numbers and special characters and all those kind of things in it. Anyway, 
to make a long story short, this guy this guy came up with these things a long time ago and uh, as part of being the NIST, and now he has since come back and said, yeah, that was kind of silly. Uh, the, other, the other part with the silly was changing your passwords, because if they force you to change your password every so often, every human's going to do the same thing. They're going to come up with some pattern. They're going to take their, their password and put a one at the end, and then they're going to put a two at the end, and then a three at the end, and they're going to keep going until they get to nine, they're going to wrap back to zero or one. Uh, again, that doesn't really make for a better password. So uh, anyway, I thought it was kind of funny, and I just wanted to make, you know, if anybody comes up to you said, oh, no, these are the accepted practices. You must have all these things in your password, and you must, you know, these special characters, and you uh, uh, you must change it ever so often. You could point them right back to this, uh, the new NIST guidelines that say that is not the case. All right, now it's time to finish up our interview with Cory Doctorow, our part two of a two-part series. And uh, the first part, again, we talked about copyright and where it came from and how it's sort of morphed and been abused by corporations over the years, including uh, Disney and Mickey Mouse was always the classic case. So if you didn't miss, if you didn't catch the first one, I recommend you go back and listen to that for sure. Uh, but today we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to talk about how corporations today are trying their hardest to control uh, everything that you quote unquote buy from them. Even though you supposedly own it and bought it, uh, they are doing their best to control how and when and where uh, you can consume that content. Watch your movie or listen to your music, all these things. So anyway, fascinating. Let's get into our part two of our discussion with Corey Doctor. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com. For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health. Sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. So talk to us a little bit about about DRM, copy protection, and, and, and what this has meant for consumers. Sure. Well, so first, a, a little bit of uh, a small gloss on what you said before. So you're right that the industry started freaking out when cassettes, you know, home taping was killing music and VHS came along and all the rest of it. But um, the difference between that stuff and digital is that uh, consuming a work in digital form involves making a copy. Right. So in other words, you cannot read a book without making a copy of it. You could listen to a, to a song without making a copy of it. But consuming a book, like just moving the book from one part of the storage on your Kindle to another or from the cloud to your Kindle or from you know a frame buffer to somewhere else, that involves making multiple copies, sometimes over the Internet, between systems that are owned by different people. So that's a, that's a huge difference from copyright's perspective because mm. copyright's not triggered by reading. 
right? But copyright is triggered by copying. And so this is why now, like to, to build up to DRM, this is why in part, when you get a digital work, it comes with a long license agreement, right? It comes with a thing that says like, you know, 20,000 words uh, sometimes of text. Which we all dutifully read, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly, right? And so those those agreements, they only exist because there is a copy being made in the process that isn't being made when you buy a book. Like when you buy a book in a store, there's like a sentence on the inside of the cover, all rights reserved, do not infringe copyright. But when you um, when you download that book, you get 20,000 words of boilerplate saying, like, by being dumb enough to buy this book <laughs> in electronic form, you agree that we're allowed to come over to your house and punch your grandmother and wear your underwear <laughs> and make long distance calls and eat all the food in your fridge to disagree to, you know, to disagree uh, just uh, or, you know, to agree, just stand there saying, no, 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 I don't agree. Uh, you know, like so this is you know, this is the this is the crux here. And um there is this idea that has been popular since the mid nineties. Um, you know, it has its origins in like the eighties, but since the mid nineties, there have been business technologists. So people kind of straddle both worlds who said it would be really great if after we sold you a book or a song or a movie, we could control what you could do with it Mm -hmm. on your own computer. And the way we're going to try to do this is with cryptography. And this is where there's some kind of technical sleight of hand that goes on because cryptography is awesome. Cryptography works. The math is really well understood and really well tried. It's all, um, you know, widely disclosed and peer reviewed. And the nutshell of cryptography is that if you like take the distraction rectangle out of your pocket and briefly pause from arguing with your racist Facebook uncle (laughs) and uh, and grab you know, any document and save it to your phone storage. If you've got encryption turned on on your phone storage, that document is now so thoroughly scrambled that if every hydrogen atom in the universe was a computer and it did nothing until the heat death of the universe but try to guess what the key was, you would run out of universe before you ran out of possible keys. So (laughs) crypto totally works. But here's where it gets interesting. In crypto, we normally talk in the the most basic terms about there being three people, Alice and Bob and Carol. Alice and Bob want to send each other messages and Carol wants to eavesdrop on them. And Alice and Bob try to devise a system that keeps Carol out. And so uh, Alice and Bob make some assumptions about what Carol can and can't do. And the first assumption they make is that Carol is probably going to get a copy of the document that they're sending back and forth, the scrambled document. Because they assume that Carol might like work for the phone company or maybe they're sending it over Wi-Fi and Carol's in the same room and so she can just intercept it over the air. Or maybe they're sending it by satellite link and Carol is on the same continent as one of them and she can get it, right? There are lots of ways that Carol can get it. And if your assumption is that Carol's never going to get a copy of your scrambled message, your system becomes very fragile. Right. They also assume that Carol knows how they scrambled the message. Because um, there's only one way to validate security processes. It's the way we do all knowledge creation, and that's through adversarial peer review, where your friends tell you gently about the mistakes you've made and your enemies tell you that you were an idiot for having made them. Uh, Anyone can design a security system that works on themselves, but all that means is that um, people dumber than you will be confounded by it and not that, that everyone will. You have to tell people how your security system works. There's no security in obscurity. So anyone who's serious about security, they tell everyone what they're doing to design their security system, right? So, so this is, this is uh, the, the term for this in security 
is that there's no security in obscurity. If if you if it stops working when someone knows how it works, then it never worked to begin with. So this raises this interesting question: How do Alice and Bob keep a secret from Carol if Carol has a copy of the scrambled message and they and she knows what they did to scramble it? Well, the answer is in the key. The key is the thing that you need to combine with the math and the scrambled message to get the unscrambled message. And without the key, you need multiple universes full of computers made of hydrogen atoms to unscramble the message. And so, so long as Alice and Bob can keep the key a secret, they're in good shape. Now, in DRM, we have what you might call voodoo crypto. And in DRM, instead of having Alice and Bob, you just got it, or Alice and Bob and Carol, you just got Alice and Bob. So like Netflix is Alice, and you, or Bob rather, and you are Alice, and Bob wants to send you a message, a Netflix movie, and Bob wants you to be able to descramble it because you're not going to pay for a Netflix subscription if you can't <laughs> right. unscramble the movies Netflix sends you. But Bob does not want you to be able to unscramble it in a program of your own devising that would allow you to save the movie to watch later. Right? Bob wants to make sure that you only watch the movie on the terms set by Netflix. Right. Um, you know, there's other examples of this. Uh, Apple wants to send you an app. Apple wants to make sure that you can install the app. Apple wants to make sure that you can't install apps that are sold to you by someone other than Apple. Um, so Apple wants to make sure that uh, you can only install software that they have sold you and not software that third parties have sold you. That way they can force everyone who makes software for their platform to sell on their store, which means that Apple gets 30% of every purchase. Nice deal for Apple. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, Bob sends Alice the movie. Bob Bob is Netflix. Alice is you. Uh, sends you the movie. Um, and you have a program that Netflix has given you. It's either a browser plugin or a Netflix uh, app. And um, that program has the key hidden in it. And so that program descrambles the movie and then throws it away as you're watching it. So as you as the frames go by, it's just it's just disappearing them. And um, what Bob is, is hoping is that you will never look hard enough at that program that he gave you to figure out where he hid the key. And the technical term for this in security is wishful thinking. <laughs> because you don't give the key to your adversary. That's where it all stops working, right? Remember, the thing that makes crypto work is that guessing the key is really hard. So, so long as you don't have the key, you can never get at the secret. But once you have the key, right. you can't get the secret. That's the point. If having the key doesn't get you at the secret, then, then there's no point in using this stuff at all. So even really good bank safes, even the very best bank safes are kept in bank vaults. They're not given to bank robbers to keep in their living rooms. <laughs> so if Bob doesn't trust Alice, Bob should never, ever give Alice the key. And so this is the reality, is that DRM systems are made over the course of years for millions of dollars by skilled experts, and they are broken in hours by teenagers using amateur equipment. Right. And it's not because those experts are stupid. It's because they're doing something stupid. They are trying to hide keys and equipment they give to their adversaries. And so in 1998, Congress passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and it includes this clause, Section 1201. And it says that doing anything that weakens a DRM system is a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. And so while it's illegal, while it's not hard to figure out where the key is in your DRM, it's illegal to look at your own property and figure out what's hidden in it, to look too hard at your own computer. Right looking at someone else's copyrighted works. Now, this doesn't actually stop pirates, right? Pirates right. just, they just, they, they don't care. 
right? Um, but that's not what DRM is about. And this is where it gets super gnarly and interesting. And before we went on the air, I said, I've kind of got a grand theory of what just happened. And this is where we get into the grand theory. If you've noticed that what um, uh, DRM is used for, those use cases I gave you before, making sure that you only install an app that's blessed by the vendor, making sure that you don't save a movie to watch for later, uh, or even with DVDs and region coding, making sure you don't buy a movie in one country and watch it in another. None of those have anything to do with copyright infringement, right? Uh, you know, like going to India and buying a movie and then watching it on a DVD player in America, that is the opposite of copyright infringement. That's going to a store where the rights holder has authorized the sale of their copyrighted work, giving the sh storekeeper the money that was set by the rights, rights holder, and then taking home the movie to watch, right? That is like, right. that is what copyright is supposed to enable. Well, there's supposed to be some but, sort of fair use and then first sale doctrine, all that kind of stuff, right? It would, yeah, I bought so it, right? It's mine. But, but even without getting, yeah, even without getting into fair use or any of those other things, the thing that copyright is supposed to make sure is that people who consume copyrighted works pay for the works at the price set by the, uh, by the creator from an authorized vendor. You've just done all of those things, yeah. right? Or, or like buying an app from someone other than Apple to run on your iPhone. Now, if I make a piece of software and want to sell it to you to run on a computer that you own and you want to give me money for that, subverting that process or enabling that process, enabling a person to make a product and someone else to buy that product and use it, that is not copyright infringement. Right. But you do have to break DRM to enable it, right? If I don't want to give Apple 30% of the purchase price, then we have to break Apple's DRM in order to do it. Now, this is not copyright infringement. Paying rights holders the price that they set for the works that they want to use them, that is not copyright infringement. So um, what DRM does is it provides for $500,000 fines and five-year prison sentences as a check against an entrepreneur going to a venture capitalist and saying, I've noticed that there's a gap in the market. People would like to watch their Netflix DVDs or the Netflix movies later. And we, we have VCRs that record shows for later viewing. We have PVRs that record shows for later viewing. The fair use says that recording your Netflix movie for later viewing is also illegal. Uh, and so I'm going to make a PVR for Netflix and I'm going to sell it to those Netflix customers, right? That's a, that's like what you would expect a market would do in that world. And indeed that's what markets have done, right? That's, that's all the technologies we have, all the entertainment technologies we have. Like, for example, there was once a company that had this really weird idea that they would go to stores and buy DVDs and then put them in red envelopes and mail them around <laughs> to people who paid them a subscription. That company was called Netflix. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, this is like, these, this is what it's supposed to prevent is not stuff that it infringes copyright, but stuff that gores someone's ox stuff that like, violates the commercial preference right. of a company, not something that violates copyright law. So this is the first part, is that DRM doesn't have anything to do with enforcing copyright. It has to do with enforcing what we might call para-copyright, which is all of the things that you may be allowed to do under copyright, but which the company really hopes you're not going to do. <laughs> and then number two is that DRM doesn't work as a technical matter. Breaking DRM is not hard technically. All you have to do to, to uh, break DRM is look closely at the code and figure out where the key has been hidden. And so what DRM is, is it's a way to make it against the law to do something that is otherwise technically easy. So we tend to focus on whether or not DRM is, is like secure or not secure, whatever. It's never secure. What it, the thing that you need to do to make DRM quote unquote secure is to add 
like a one molecule thick layer of DRM to <laughs> the law. And so one of the outcomes of this is that people who reveal defects in DRM systems, like people who tell you about bugs in the code, those people, although they're doing something really important, right? I tell you about a bug in your set-top box that has a camera pointed at you in your living room. You want to know about that bug because it might be letting randos stare at you in your underwear, right? right? But allowing people to talk about the technical deficits of technologies that have DRM in them has to be illegal for DRM to work as a technical matter because as soon as you're allowed to publicize the defects in DRM because it doesn't work as a technology – then uh, DRM falls apart. And so those are, the, those are like my, my, my two ironclad laws of DRM. It's not about copyright infringement, and it doesn't work technologically, and so that, therefore you have to suppress security disclosures. And indeed, the DMCA has been used to put security researchers in jail for warning people about defects in widely used DRM technologies where those defects could affect them personally and their privacy. Well, of course, the poster boy almost literally is Aaron Schwartz, right? No, that was um, that was the uh, user license agreement. So the poster boy for this one's a guy named Dimitri Skilierov. But Aaron Aaron was very incensed about what happened to Dimitri. Mm. So you're sort of right. Aaron got uh, the in 1984 Congress or 1986 Congress passed this law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that also makes it a felony right. to quote exceed your authorization on a computer that you don't own, and that means that violating those terms of service is potentially a felony. So Aaron went to MIT where he was allowed to be and he logged into their network, which he was allowed to log into. And he downloaded articles from a scientific repository, which he was allowed to do. But he used a script to do it instead of clicking on the links. And in the fine print, it said, you won't use a script. You'll just click on links. And so Aaron was facing 35 years in prison for 13 felonies when he hanged himself after the prosecutor bankrupted him for uh, because he wouldn't take a plea by drawing out the early motion. So different, different. Uh, law, same general principle, right? Being able to tell people about like defects in systems that they rely on, being able to figure out how those systems work, all of that stuff is now being regulated as though it were uh, an unimportant thing when really it's the most important thing. So we've come, so we finally come to the crux of the matter. We've come to the reason of one of the main reasons I brought you on at this sure. time, and that is yeah. the whole thing with the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, and this thing called yeah. encrypted media extensions. What happened? So in uh, 2013, the web was on the rocks. Uh, apps had started to eat the web's lunch. A lot of the big publishers had said, why bother publishing on the web where anyone can link to us and we can't control the experience and uh, we're just going to make apps instead. That meant that uh, Netflix and other big publishers on the web were starting to get more power over the web. Uh, and at the same time, the web standards were moving along. So um, browsers have been, you know, they were kind of grown instead of designed. You know, there are all these different browser technologies that like merged and, you know, there were browser wars. And one of the consequences of that is that browsers have what, what are called APIs, which are like ways that programs can talk to them over the internet uh, that went really deep into your computer. And those APIs, like when hackers compromise browsers, they use those APIs to do things like gank stuff out of memory or pull files off your hard drive or, or even like invade your camera and your microphone, really compromise you. So all those APIs were going away. Now those APIs are where the DRM in browsers before that had lived. You couldn't do DRM without APIs that went deep into the operating system because you need to be able to control, you know, the hard drive, the memory, the screen display, not all mm -hmm. that stuff at really low level. 
And so um, it was becoming almost impossible to make DRM for the web. If, if Netflix wanted to make DRM for Chrome, they had to go negotiate with Google, and then they had to do it again with Mozilla for Firefox, and again with Microsoft for whatever that browser they make is called that no one uses, and so on. And um, you know, uh, against that backdrop, a weak web and uh, a web where DRM wouldn't be supported anymore, Netflix and a few other media companies, the BBC is one of them, they, they went to the World Wide Web Consortium where open standards for the web have always been made, and they said, either you make us a standard to enable DRM on the web, or we'll just stop putting stuff on the web. Uh, and that will, the web will, it, its demise will be hastened. <laughs> and so they made a terrible compromise. They said, all right, we are gonna design this thing called encrypted media extensions. That is half of a DRM system for the web. It's the thing that you use to talk to the DRM uh, through the web, the way you hook deep into the operating system. And in some ways, this is even worse than making a whole DRM, because one of the cool things about open standards is anyone can make them. Uh, so like once there's a standard for JPEG images, anyone in the world who wants to make a browser that can display a JPEG image just follows the recipe in the standard and they can do it. And moreover, if you join the W3C, you have to promise never to use your patents against anyone who's doing that. So you don't even have to worry about that someone might have patented displaying JPEGs. If they're in the working group that's that's designing the standard for JPEGs, then you can just do it. But because half of the DRM wasn't being made by the W3C, all the browser, all the major browsers would be able to support DRM. And none of the other browsers that were in the future would be able to do it without getting permission from many people. So it's, it was like an open standard that wasn't really open. And so... This has lots of problems, right? The security research problem, that's a huge one because breaking DRM is illegal even if you're doing it for a legitimate reason. Suddenly you've got this browser technology that's used by two or three billion people around the world and there's a part of it that no security researcher is allowed to examine. And if that has a defect, then literally billions of people are at risk for everything they do in their browser, right? You know, that's the the letter you sent to your doctor and the, I just, we, we're buying a house. I, the escrow documents I've gotten and displayed in my browser this week are full of like toe-curlingly frightening personal information. <laughs> All of that stuff is suddenly available uh, to anyone who can break it and security researchers can't raise the alarm. Meanwhile, like bad guys who figure out the defect is there, they can go on and sell that defect to criminals because criminals don't care that it's against the law to, 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 to promote the defect. But there's other problems, right? Like maybe you want to be able to do adaptation for people with disabilities. So like say you want to make a tool that um, buffers Netflix video and looks ahead a few frames to see if there's a strobe that might trigger a seizure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a friend, the woman who uh, works at the mailbox where I get my mail. She has photosensitive epilepsy and the worst seizure she ever had was five seizures in a row that hospitalized her while watching a movie on Netflix Oh wow! Uh, because of a strobe in it. You know, there's and then there's there's just like you might just want to do something that is legal, but that gores someone's ox. You know, Netflix exists because they could mail red envelopes full of DVDs around. The studios didn't like it, but they couldn't stop it because preferences are not laws. But if you have to break DRM, then preferences become laws. And so this is like the end of new technologies on the Web. This is every pirate wanting to be an admiral. It was when Netflix <laughs> did orderly progress of of the. Uh, of the of the industry through innovation and when someone does it to netflix that's an unacceptable uh you know immoral act to undertaken by pirates who don't respect intellectual property right right and so um we at eff at the electronic frontier foundation which is a non-profit that works on 
privacy, security, free speech, and, and other core civil liberties issues on the web. And we've been at it since before the web existed. We're, we're more than 25 years old now. Um, and we went to the W3C and we joined them and said, please don't do this, right? We, we sort of put a motion forward not to do it. And we were trounced. And the W3C executive and the members who responded to us, they said, it sounds like what you're worried about here is that um, this DMCA law and the laws like it around the world, that they make things hard. Well, we don't make laws here. We make technologies. If you've got a problem with the law, you should do something about the law. Mm. And so we went back to them. We said, well, you know, to be frank, we actually also don't like DRM. But this law, you're <laughs> right. And as it turns out, you do do something about the law. You have this patent agreement. If you make... DRM, or if you make a standard at the W3C, you have to promise not to use your intellectual property rights to interfere with legitimate activity on the web. Well, now you have this new intellectual property right, this, this DRM right that has never affected W3 standards before, but surely the same rule should apply to it. So what we're going to propose is a binding covenant, an agreement that everyone who's at the W3C will sign on behalf of their companies that'll say, we will only invoke laws that ban breaking DRM when someone has also violated another statute, like when they've infringed copyright or, you know, uh, infringed a trademark or stolen a trade secret or, you know, engaged in tortious interference with our customers. So we still get to enforce every right Congress has ever given us, but we don't get to make up new rights that allow us to turn our preferences into legal obligations. And, you know, that would prevent all copyright infringement, like 100 percent of copyright infringement would still be enforceable. And um, after months and years of fighting about this, it became the most contentious issue in the W3C's, W3C's history. The W3C operates on a consensus basis, and usually only a small number of members are, are ever interested in any work product they're doing. Like, yeah, if, if, you're, if you're a member who cares about you know, how JPEGs are formatted and a vote comes up about, about what the next JPEG standard is going to look at, uh, look like you might say, okay, you and your your 19 other members who care about this will cast a vote, and 18 will say we're in favor, and like two will abstain, and one will add a little note that says we really think that this minor change should be made. And with the W3C, it was nothing like that, right? When the final vote came down, it was like 58% in favor, and there were uh, almost 200 members who'd voted. Hmm. And um, you know, there's, there's, I can't talk about the vote in detail because even though we quit the W3C over this, we're bound by confidentiality. Sure. But members, when they vote, they add remarks to their votes. And, and you know, the W3C released some top line numbers, but they didn't release those remarks. And those remarks tell a really different story about the level of support. It was really unpopular within the W3C. I think the best way you could characterize it is like people were like, I guess we have to do this, but oh God, I wish we weren't. Right. And so, the interesting thing about this is when you read the arguments, both from the W3C itself and from the members who supported DRM, and that you ask them, like, well, why couldn't you let people disclose defects in DRM that might protect people? They said, well, if you know how the DRM works, then it stops working. Right? Well, that's security through obscurity. Right. right. Then it's not security. Right. So that's our second point. Right. DRM is not a technical matter. It's a legal matter. Um, and then. You know, when you look at what they did, what they voted against, they voted against allowing people to make uses that were lawful, that they disagreed with. You see that this has nothing to do with copyright infringement. This only has to do with extending your, uh, your preferences into rights. And where it gets really gnarly is that in the Internet of Things world, where you have thermostats and toasters and cars, and they all have software in them, and all that software is copyrighted, 
adding DRM can allow manufacturers to force you to use their products in ways that benefit them instead of you. So in the early 2000s, printer vendors tried to use the DMCA to right. force you to buy first-party inkjet cartridges, and they were trounced because there wasn't enough software in those cartridges, but now there is. Right now, refilling your inkjet cartridge could be a felony. And so we're now seeing DRM in pacemakers, in the seismic dampers that keep skyscrapers from falling down, in cars so that they can force um, uh, mechanics to spend $70,000 on a diagnostic tool and make as a condition of selling that tool that they only buy original parts that cost five times as right. much as the third parts. We're seeing it in tractors so farmers can't fix their own tractors anymore, um, in, in all kinds of technology. And browsers are the front end for all of those technologies. So now we have the technologies using DRM in ways that in that makes it impossible to report on security defects and technologies that can literally kill you. And we have the control surfaces for those also being illegal to audit. And every firm has this incredible incentive to use it because they get to turn their commercial preferences into rights. And so at EFF, we're suing the U.S. government to get rid of this law. We're representing a researcher at Johns Hopkins, Matthew Greens, and another one at the Media Lab at MIT, Bunny Wang. And we're arguing that the DMCA violates their constitutional rights. It's going to be a long case. It could take a decade or more to go through the courts. But we think it's our best shot at invalidating this law. So as we, uh, this has been really fascinating for me, and I hope so for the audience as well. We need to pull it to a close. So what, what I usually like to wrap up with with things like this is, Tell my audience what they can do. What it, it, is it just a matter of the standard write your representatives? Is there more to it than that? If I'm concerned about this, if you've convinced me that DRM and the DMCA uh, yeah. needs modification, what do I do? The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Tell my audience what they can do. What it, it, is it just a matter of the standard write your representatives? Is there more to it than that? If I'm concerned about this, if you've convinced me that DRM and the DMCA uh, yeah. needs modification, what do I do? So alas, a lot of our options have closed because the W3C process ended. And it's kind of a weird and ironic fact of life that people find it hard to understand the technical details of a process like this, but they can understand when the process is rotten, right? When a group like EFF quits and walks away, they're like, oh, something terrible must have happened mm -hmm. there. But in the three years that we were like, hey, everybody, something terrible has happened here, people would look at it and go, oh, that looks too complicated. <laughs> and so we had a lot of options to do something great there, and they collapsed. Uh, and so that's a real bummer and I hate to be such a Debbie Downer here, but on the other hand, EFF, you know, we've spent 25 years squeezing our members dollars until they holler to do more with less than any other activist group I've ever been involved with. And, you know, I, my, my wages there are actually paid out of a grant from the MIT media lab. I'm a, I'm a research affiliate at the media lab. And so I, I don't get paid by them. If you give them money, it doesn't go to me. Uh, and I make a big donation every year because I've really never seen an organization do better. And 
just if you and and you know, I know these are hard economic times. If you're skint and you can't give us any money, I get that. But join our mailing list because there are most of the time calling your representative, emailing your representative, it doesn't do anything. But we find those junctures, those moments of leverage where we can do like these targeted email layouts. Like you live in Lexington, Kentucky. This congressman is in a marginal seat. Uh, he's up for election next year and he holds a key position on this committee. You call that guy today and you tell him how you feel and we can make a huge difference. And we do those. We don't waste your time. We send out really important notifications and it doesn't cost you a penny to do it. And you know, you just, you make a quick local phone call, you send an email and you make a huge, huge difference. And you know, like the internet is the nervous system of the 21st century and getting it wrong is so catastrophic that we cannot contemplate it. It is too big to allow to fail. So we all need to be in this fight. I mean, if you care about climate justice or racial justice or economic inequality or gender justice, you know, I'm with you, but every one of those fights is gonna be won or lost on the internet. So without a free, fair and open internet, which is what EFS stock and trade is, then all of those fights are lost even before we started. Well said. And I've, I've been talking to you guys up for a long time. I've interviewed a lot of folks from EFF. I, you guys are doing fantastic work on that. So I will say again and back that up, please send these guys some money. If you can't do it yourself, pay the people to do it for you. And you guys are doing a wonderful job. Again, the newsletter, a great idea. I'm on it myself. And uh, Corey, thank you so much for coming and explaining this all to us. It was very entertaining, very insightful. And uh, thanks for coming. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being such a great supporter. Just want to say thank you one more time to Corey Doctor. What a fascinating interview. Uh, copyright and digital rights management are things that unfortunately we deal with on a daily basis in our digital world with all the streaming movies and streaming audio and uh, all these all these different technologies, even the CDs and DVDs and, and Blu-rays and things that you bring home. All these things are all packed with all this technology to try to prevent you from doing what you want to do with it. Uh, so that these guys can, can maintain more control over their products. And we've got to find a better balance than what we have now. So anyway, thank you very much to Corey for coming on again. Uh, of course, you can check him out as co-editor of the blog, boingboing.net. Uh, and you can check out his books. I highly recommend you start with Little Brother. You can actually get a free a PDF version for that. If you want to search for that on the web on his website, you'll find it there. Uh, he's got other books you can get. And of course, if you want to thank him for this, you can actually buy a version of this uh, book uh, from his website. Uh, look for Little Brother or Homeland or his brand new book called Walk Away. And uh, also, if you want to help support the things that he supports, go to the EFF and send those guys some money. Become a member. Uh, EFF is doing some fantastic work on your behalf, and they need all the help they can get. And now it's time for the tip of the week. We're going to talk about a plugin for your web browser called Decentralize. That's Decentral, you know, like the word Decentralize, D-E-C-E-N-T-R-A-L. E-Y-E-S, uh, the last part being uh, eyes like the eyes on your face. <laughs> uh, so Decentralize is a privacy plugin for your web browser. So this is something that you would uh, install into Firefox or Chrome or Safari or Internet Explorer, whatever your web browser may be. Uh, and it helps to protect your privacy in a, kind of an interesting way, in one of ways that we don't talk about much on the show, and ways that I did actually didn't even mention in the, the web surfing privacy one that we had just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's kind of related to browser fingerprinting. Uh, basically, uh, let me give you just a brief overview of why this is important. Uh, when you load up your web browser, just about all the, the fancy content that we have today that does interesting things when you hover your mouse over it or click on things, uh, uses a language called JavaScript. Uh, and, and other things like JavaScript. And these are little little bits of code 
Uh, and they're all versioned, right? Because these things, they, they add new features all the time. So there's a version one, there's a version two, there's a 2.1 and 2.1.5. And all these things have versions. You never see any of this. If you were actually, if you looked at your web pages and kind of did a right click and say view as source, you actually find these things buried in there somewhere. So when you're downloading a web page, part of that web page is, are, are these little descriptions that say, okay, I want to do something fancy. And instead of embedding it in this, in this web page, I'm going to tell you where to go find it so that everybody could just kind of go to one place and get it from the single place. And there's these things that run behind the network that you never really see called content delivery networks or CDNs. Uh, and so these CDNs have become a, a, a really backbone resource for the web. Everybody uses them. And uh, so you're constantly, your web pages, if they're doing anything beyond just regular text, are constantly making queries out to these CDNs and saying, okay, this guy, this web page, wants to use this little coding library, um, and it's version 1.2.3. Um, do you have 1.2.3 or do I have the latest or he wants to use the latest? Do I have the latest? So they're constantly making these queries. And then if they're not there, then they download it. This all happens in the background. You never know this happens. However, because this is happening all the time and it's happening all the time in the background, every web page you load that has any of this fancy content is going out and asking for these resources. And by virtue of contacting all these um, centralized well, actually, they're decentralized servers because they're all over the place. But these networks, these CDNs, they're asking these CDNs for this content. These CDNs basically have a, a view into everything that you're doing on the web. Because as they're making these requests, your web browser goes out behind, you know, without asking, just, it, just how it works. They go out and ask these CDNs, say, hey, I need this resource. Do you have this for me or do you have the latest version of it? Oh, I've already got the latest. Okay, good, fine. Uh, oh, I don't have the latest, so please give it to me. And when it's doing that, Again, web browsers give up all sorts of information on you. So um, they cough up uh, lots of information about your computer, what operating system you're running, what size screen you have, yada, yada, yada. This is kind of like the fingerprinting I was talking to you about a couple weeks ago. And so these content delivery networks basically get a view into what a lot of people are doing on the web. Uh, and I'm sure that they are recording some of that and making use out of that data. So decentralize. This plugin basically tries to pull together the most popular common things that are asked for and it intercepts all those requests so it basically says when your web page says hey go see if this uh, uh if i can download this thing decentralized says oh well nope no problem i got it you don't have to go anywhere and so it keeps everything local so it blocks these requests that uh many of them the the most popular ones um and keeps them all local uh, so it also actually, for that same reason, um, makes your web browsing a lot faster because it has basically pre-downloads all these things that uh, it's guessing you're going to need. So you don't have to go fetch them. So your web pages will load faster uh, and you're not going to be giving up privacy information. So it's a great little uh, plugin, something I'd like to recommend. It's called Decentralize and they just came out with a 2.0 version. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that to you. There will be links on the website on uh, where to go and find that, but you could just Google it as well. Again, it's the, the, it's a take on decentralize the actual word, uh, and instead of I Z E at the end or I S E at the end, it's E Y E S, uh, D E C E N T R A L E Y E S. Uh, so look for that, put that in your browser, uh, and it should, uh, improve your, your web browsing time, your, your web browsing speed, and also give you some more privacy. That's the end of another week of firewalls. Don't stop dragons. Thanks for tuning in. We got some more great interviews coming up. And uh, some more tips of the week. And, of course, I will always keep you up to date on the biggest news items and the things I think you need to know. 
uh, and try to <laughs> try to rule out all the stuff you don't because there's plenty of that. So thanks again for tuning in. Come back again next week for more. And as always, if you'd like to help me to help you on my quest to uh, educate people about privacy and security on the net, go to patreon.com slash firewalls don't stop dragons. You'll find a link on my website, firewalls don't stop dragons.com, as well as my pages on uh, uh, americaoutloud.com as well. And uh, there's a lot more information there. You can go check that out and uh, perhaps you can help me out to help you. You can sign up for weekly tips as well. Uh, sometimes they overlap with ones in the in the web show. Sometimes they're different, uh, but they come directly to you every Sunday night. If you want to sign up for a newsletter, you can go to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons to, to get my newsletter there and get those tips of the week. I also have a blog that you can check out when you have some time. Of course, there's always the book on Amazon.com called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons with well over 100 tips uh, with pictures and step-by-step instructions for all of the things we talk about on the show and much, much more. And uh, otherwise, just keep it tuned right here and we'll come back next week and I'll have uh, more information for you. Until next week, folks, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Take care.